Welcome back to Is It Horror? This is Season 3, Episode 3, Star Trek First Contact. I'm Joe. I'm Matt. And I am Steve. And unfortunately, Brianna won't be able to join us for this episode, but she should be back next time. And if you haven't joined us before, each episode we analyze a piece of media, usually a movie whose horror status is debatable. We look at the creator's intent, audience reception, and the content of the media all in an effort to better define the horror genre. If you agree with our take, that's awesome, and if you don't, that's awesome too. Horror is a diverse genre, and all are welcome. And before we get into Star Trek First Contact, let's go to Joe's Good to Know You Corner. Joe? Alright, so First Contact, I was thinking a bunch about what to ask for this question, and I thought there was a lot of things like just involved with First Contact, like um, what would you do, what would you say, what, you know... Any, any of that sort of stuff. Uh, I guess what I settled on for a question is what food would you serve to, like, the Vulcans in this particular situation as, like, your first, like, sit down and get to know your meal type thing? Or, like, I guess, but that's just sort of the concept for the question. So if there's something else you'd want to say about how you'd handle first contact, I'd, I'd love to hear that, too. Um, and I guess, uh, so I'll start us off with that, I guess. What I kind of thought about was like hamburgers, but it's one of those things where it's like that feels like sort of like an all around like American dish, but like we're talking about first contact for like a planet. So like, I don't know, like what, what do you do that's like, um, you know, representative of a, of a planet? I have, I have no idea, but I thought burgers and fries seemed like a good thing to me. <laughs> I don't know. My thought process on this is that I feel that the first contact represented in Star Trek First Contact is probably really different from how first contact with an alien species would really go. Because it's like, how likely is it that we're going to run into some aliens and they're just going to look exactly like us, but the ears are pointy, right? So, like, I don't know. Yeah. I guess what are I the would, chances of that? <laughs> yeah, it seems like seems wild. So like, I feel like the meal that I would want to serve them would sort of just be like a buffet of all the foods that like like a really good display of like the characteristic dish of each country. So it wouldn't. I know I'm deviating, not offering quite a meal so much as a smorgasbord, uh, but I am a fan of smorgasbord. So that's what I would try to do with them, assuming we could even speak the same language or that they don't eat just dark matter or they don't eat humans, you know. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe they just want to try eating humans and they haven't had a shot at it yet. So you could always do that. Feed them the, you know, person you didn't like the most who was around. That's a good idea, too. Is that your answer? Yes. No, it's not really my answer. I, You know, I'm not sure actually what I would feed them. I guess I'd... You, you ever have, um, okay, when you have your, you're showing someone who's new at your job how to do the job, and you kind of almost want to show them, like, the best version of what to do rather than what you actually do. So I don't know if maybe that would be the thing that I would feel like is like, well, I should probably feed them something that is really good and really nice, not what I normally eat. So I'd probably be, like, trying to search around for the best possible dish that was something that I quite honestly almost never have. 
So I guess that would be the thing that comes to mind, but I'm not sure what, like, I'm not even sure what that food would be, because by definition, it's one that I wouldn't end up eating that often. <laughs> yeah, like, here's this, like, super fancy steak with, like, gold flakes on top, and they'd just be like, oh, so you eat this all the time? I'd be like, no, yeah. I've actually never eaten this. <laughs> I've never seen this before in my life, but I thought you might like it. Other people eat it and they haven't died, so I guess that's something. Well, that's just like if you have any guest you want to present, put your best foot forward. Like our family always used to make like this particular lasagna whenever we we're going to have a guest over. So maybe we just make the aliens lasagna. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I uh, so, so what I had another thought about first contact. Uh, well, more specifically about how this movie presents first contact. Um, that it's not really a question, but I well, I guess maybe it sort of is. Anyways, what the thought was was like, I mean, the fact that the Enterprise crew was there on the planet, and you know, despite the Vulcans not seeing them or whatever for you know plot reasons, um, they still affected first contact pretty drastically and i think just just in the nature of like kind of prepping zephyr and Co cochran uh for first contact and being like an alien race is going to land here in your backyard literally right there and you're gonna talk to them like they prepped him for that like i don't know the way they presented the character if he wouldn't have had that preparation i feel like he would have flipped out and ran off and like, you know, but like him and probably all of his crew were all prepped for that idea. So I don't know. I guess it was just an interesting thought, I guess. Uh, do you guys, how do you guys feel about that? <laughs> no, I think that you're right. And I think with the way that time travel is presented, at least in terms of the film, I can't vouch for how it's presented throughout the entire Star Trek franchise. But at least in terms of the film, they deal with the idea that you can change the past. So you can't even deal with the idea that Zephram Cochran having help with the first warp flight is always how it's gone. Because, you know, they have that moment where they see the Earth from above. And spoilers at this point for Star Trek First Contact. They have that moment where they look from above and they see that, uh, you know, the whole planet's been taken over by Borg because they went back and changed the past. So, yeah, I guess you would have to assume from there the butterfly effect that there is some minor changes, maybe even big changes forever afterward, unless you want to go with more of a Doctor Who view of things that uh, there are big events that need to remain the same, but you can tweak little things here and there. So, so long as first contact happens, then you can change the little details surrounding it and it'll be okay. Yeah, I think Star Trek First Contact doesn't really deal too deeply with the idea of like paradoxes that you might cause or accidentally erasing yourself for the butterfly effect even though that's like the whole premise of the movie is that they have to stop the butterfly effect or they have to stop the what how the borg will affect the future but yeah i think you're right it does they don't really delve too deeply into that but the best uh explanation is that in their remembrance of the events, this is actually what happened to make it happen, and it never would have happened that way without them, maybe. Yeah, and, like, you get some other little moments, too, where at least it made me think about, like, you get the moment where um, Zephram and Riker are sitting in the cockpit, and, you know, Riker's like, 
you know, a great man once said, uh, just try and be a good man. Don't try and be a great man. Let history figure it out or what, however the quote goes exactly. I don't, I know I don't have that a hundred percent right, but you know, and then he's like, Oh, who said that? That's a dumb idea. I was like, well, you did. So did he say, I mean, he said it, but did, was, did it come from him or did it come from Riker? And it came from Riker coming from him, you know, that whole idea. Where did the pen come from? Um, so I, there's stuff like that that happens too. And I thought about it even with like, say, the design of the Enterprise. You know, you get uh, people on the planet from the past here who see the Enterprise. I guess they only really show that, um, you know, Lily, Lily sees it from the inside and Zephram sees it through the telescope. But even the design for that could be just based on you know, them seeing it and that getting kind of eventually passed down to when the Enterprise is originally uh, or first built. It's true. All of those things could have influenced it. And you don't know exactly where those ideas came from in this version of things now. Maybe we should introduce the movie and everything first. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Took uh, took the corner to a different level here. We can uh, That's let's okay. close the corner out. <laughs> Okay. Well, so yeah, if you obviously already know that we're covering Star Trek First Contact from 1996. Uh, the director of that film is Jonathan Frakes, and uh, he's best known for playing Will Riker on Star Trek The Next Generation, and also from Ripley's Believe It or Not. But aside from that, film-wise, he's directed not only this film, but Star Trek Insurrection, Clock Stoppers, and Thunderbirds. He's also directed quite a bit of TV, directing episodes of Star Trek, uh, multiple of those series like Picard and uh, um, plenty of the other series along with that. He's also branched out and done things like he's directed episodes of The Orville and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and Burn Notice and Castle. So he's done mostly TV directing and then did plenty of episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation as director before going ahead and doing this film. As far as the writers go, uh, the story itself is initially pitched kind of by Rick Berman along with the writers Brandon Braga and Ronald D. Moore. Uh, Rick Berman is producer on Star Trek The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and Enterprise, and he also helped get Jonathan Frakes the job of directing this film. And then uh, same with Brandon Braga and Ronald D. Moore. They also wrote numerous episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation, uh, Voyager, Enterprise, Deep Space Nine, and uh, worked on Star Trek Generations. So they've they've done a lot of Star Trek work. Uh, Brandon Braga particularly, he also worked on the Orville N24, and Ronald D. Moore also worked on Battlestar Galacta, Galactica and Outlander. So the idea is they had kind of the idea for the story. They put everything together and then uh, Jonathan Frakes came on a bit later for this film, particularly to give you the back of the box description. If you're not already familiar with it, Captain Jean-Luc Picard and the crew of the USS Enterprise E discovered that the Borg have gone back in time to prevent Zephram Cochran's first warp speed expedition. Canceling this historic flight means humanity never makes first contact with aliens and Earth is lost to the Borg. In a race for survival, Picard and his crew will travel through time, track down the Borg, and make sacrifices you'll have to see to believe. Spoilers for Star Trek First Contact going forward. There might also be some minor spoilers for uh, various other 
Star Trek fiction, but we'll try and keep that at a minimum. So one of the things that I at least wanted to make a point of here is, uh, so first we usually end up on these episodes, we'll talk about some intent from our creative crew, kind of what they were hoping to do with the film. But I thought that it might be worth mentioning just to kind of bring it up. And this is something we've talked about in previous episodes, but why intent of the creative team isn't the whole story as far as the final genre of a film. And the way that I kind of look at it and the way that we break this down usually is to view art as communication and communication has the parts of your sender and your receiver and the message itself. So in the context of a film, your sender would be your directors, your writers, your production crew, basically anyone who worked on the film. And then your receiver would be your audience, anyone who's watching the film later. And then of course the message would be the film itself. So if you break down those parts of communication and look at like the smallest form of a communication. So you have someone that you're talking to, they tell you something that you find that offends you, something that upsets you. And if you can think of an instance in your life where something like that's happened, maybe the person tells you their intent later was not to hurt you. And maybe that changes things and maybe it doesn't. And just to look at the idea of even on a micro scale, the intent of what the person meant whenever they said something that may have hurt you doesn't necessarily influence how you feel about what they said. So that's why even on a larger scale, like this was something like a movie, while intent does matter, it isn't the whole story. So now that I've gone on a lot, I don't know if you guys, either of you have anything you want to add to that particular concept before moving on. I guess not add to, just sort of to kind of agree with. Uh, it's something that doing the podcast, I've come to realize a lot more. We've covered some stuff that seems like definitely horror, uh, but then, you know, you look at the creator's intent and they say they weren't trying to make that, but it still is definitely horror. Um, Little Nightmares, the video game specifically is one that we did that was like that. Uh, so it's just a, it's a, I think a very valid and interesting concept. I think about it too with the Return to Oz episode because we had that whole episode where the director is kind of breaking down his surprise over the fact that anyone would be scared by his film. So I think that's interesting too is, you know, it's just how it is with any communication. There's what you mean, but that doesn't always come across. Yeah, I think you especially see that in some of the Is It Christmas episodes that we've done where like, Nightmare Before Christmas, you could watch on Halloween, or you could watch it on Christmas, or Die Hard, becoming a Christmas movie kind of a thing. So yeah, definitely plays a factor in a lot of things. And then in terms of this film particularly, so I didn't find too much where uh, Roger Moore, or Ronald Moore, sorry, Ronald Moore, or Rick Berman were specifically talking about the various genres being played with within Star Trek First Contact. However, I did find some interview information with Brandon Braga just talking about he himself being a big horror fan and a big Twilight Zone fan, and that a lot of his episodes while working on The Next Generation would inject those kind of sensibilities into, into those projects. And so that interest you can kind of see how that would bleed a little bit into this project as well. So he particularly says, you know, there are episodes that uh, 
there are episodes that just aren't in my DNA. And yeah, I am a horror fan. I saw Room for Terror on the show. There are scary things out there in deep space. And yes, my favorite show of all time is The Twilight Zone. And some of those shows had definitely been called Twilight Zone-esque. And that's a fair comparison. Not that I'm saying they are good, but it is what I was aspiring to. So a quote from him talking about just his work on Star Trek and that there was times where he was consciously and sometimes subconsciously injecting horror into his scripts. Now for Jonathan Frakes, there was an interview that he did with IGN where they had asked him, uh, from a creative standpoint, what do you think was your biggest accomplishment on the picture? And so Frakes responded with, I think the fact that we were able to weave this horror story, a horror movie, which is the Borg development, in with the sort of historical drama of the history of Cromwell's character, I thought that the cross between action, drama, and comedy, there was a blend of those three elements, was pretty successfully achieved. So, again, um, Jonathan Frakes being brought on director came a bit later, so we have the script first, which clearly has at least some horror inspirations there, and then of course Jonathan Frakes in putting together the movie saw that at least as part of the DNA of the film, if maybe not the entire drive of the film, but it's clear that that was at least part of what he was thinking about. He's also said in other interviews that the studio had requested that he do pickup shots in order to make the Borg seem more terrifying, and it's also worth noting in this instance that this is the first Star Trek film to receive a PG-13 rating instead of just a PG rating. Although that being said, there were about four Star Trek films that existed before PG-13 existed as a rating, so take that idea for what it's worth. And then in terms of reception, uh, across streaming services there, we do have about nine that are listing this film as sci-fi, six that are listing it as action, four that are listing it as adventure, two that are listing it as fantasy, one is thriller, one is drama, but no one specifically listing this film as horror. And then we'll usually check our Google and Wikipedia searches to see if there's a bump for searches of this film around October, which could indicate that people see it as a horror film. We don't have any kind of bump for searches on either of those services for this film. So at least as far as the general populace, we're not seeing a lot of interest in it around October. Uh, another thing, though, is that we were able to do a uh, a listener poll at FanX uh, where we asked 51 respondents whether they thought this film was horror or not. And we'll read a few of their answers in a second. 67% or about 34 people said that, yes, they could see it as a horror film. And about 33% or uh, 17 people said, no, they did not see it as a horror film. Part of that whole poll was that uh, the best answer that we received would win a free copy of Star Trek First Contact in 4K. So we're going to read three of the responses that we got. Uh, the last one will be the one that wins. So we'll announce that in just a sec. Uh, so let's go ahead and have the first quote. Okay, um, Jacob Nelson said, The movie follows the arc of many horror films. Picard is a survivor of a previous encounter with the monster and tries to warn everyone. That doesn't work, and the Borg get onto the Enterprise. As far as I remember, that's a first for Star Trek. 
and has uh, strong horror themes as a result. The monsters are inside the house, as it were, and are converting more and more of the crew. And then we had another quote here from Andrew Shepard, who also said that he viewed it as horror. And he said, The Borg are scary. Science fiction cross-pollinates with a lot of genres, horror included, Alien, The Thing, The Terminator, and Star Trek frequently uh, participates in this tradition. This film utilizes horror tropes and privileges horror as an affect. And then we have our winner. So Matt, you read that quote, and then we will, uh, the winner there, we will get you this copy of the 4K. I'll contact you. Okay, so the winner is... The wealth. Let's see. Let's hear what the winner said first. So the winner said, essentially, an invasive species from space that is taking over not only entire systems but the species therein and taking over their minds and bodies. And not only does it show that after he is freed, there is lasting effects, but the individual is still trapped within. And this was said to us by Dallas Monroe, who's the winner of the contest. So he says, "Hell yes, it is horror." Aw, yeah. Thanks to everyone who participated in that survey, and we'll probably be doing more of these in the future. And as I said, Dallas, I will be in touch with you. So hopefully you're listening along, and uh, I'll shoot you an email soon. All right, now we've got kind of what we're seeing on both sides intent and reception-wise. What did everybody think? Star Trek First Contact, is it a horror? Uh, this was a hard one for me, uh, as so often is on the show. Uh, I had to ultimately decide for myself that it was not horror, um, but it has so much there and we're going to talk about it and we already have a little bit, but I, you know, no, (laughs) no judgment for anybody who views it as horror. I, I totally see that with everything. I really want to say not horror, but I kind of want to say this is Star Trek's horror film of all the Star Trek movies. So, I don't know. I think I'm going to argue horror and try to convince myself as we go. Uh, This was a real close one for me as well. I really went back and forth on it, but I think that ultimately I thought not horror. It was really really close but i i had to say not horror in the end so one of the first things that i wanted to take a look at is basically what everyone's prior experience with star trek was so i wanted to see how familiar with star trek and specifically star trek the next generation were you before this film uh i've i've always enjoyed star trek i i wouldn't say that i'm like i've been a huge trekkie but i've seen all the movies and i've seen a good deal of next generation and voyager and deep space nine um i guess we're specifically talking about next generation so sorry for diverging but uh but yeah i've seen a good deal of it um and pretty familiar with it with things it's okay, we can do both. So yeah, Star Trek in general, that still counts. Uh, I watched probably the most um, Star Trek I've watched is Voyager. So I've probably seen every episode of Voyager, but I have seen an awful lot of Next Generation. I've seen pretty much, well, I wouldn't say all of Next Generation, but I've seen a lot of it. I've seen all the movies. First Contact was definitely a favorite of ours in our family growing up. And then 
Uh, I even had a, so particularly I like the episodes with the Borg. I think that the Borg are probably arguably the most compelling enemy that exists in the Star Trek universe. And I even had like a DVD collection that had every episode of Star Trek across all the different TV shows that incorporated the Borg in some way. So that's kind of interesting to go through and watch that chronologically as all the different crews of the Enterprise and other ships are dealing with the Borg. So that's, I guess I'm, I wouldn't call myself a Trekkie, but I have a good amount of experience on this subject. Yeah, and growing up in the same home there with you, obviously, I I had a very similar experience, watched a lot of Star Trek The Next Generation, uh, a lot of Voyager. I wasn't as big into Deep Space Nine. I think I'd always viewed that show as a little bit more politically driven, which at the time as a kid, that's not something that I was all that interested in. But yeah, I've seen all of the movies, uh, watching through Picard, through a bit of Discovery, uh, then it's just... Lower Decks is hilarious. I highly recommend that. So, yeah, I'm pretty familiar with all of as much of what was available Star Trek wise before Star Trek First Contact came out. I'd seen some of the original series, but more often I'd seen the movies. Uh, so, one of the things I kind of want to take a look at is so obviously Star Trek is sci fi, but I wanted to take this quick exercise and see like if you had to describe the most prominent genre of the entire Star Trek franchise after sci-fi. So sci-fi is number one. What's number two in your opinion? Uh, I guess um, for me, I think probably number two is action because it's like uh, there's a lot going on with Star Trek, which is one of the really cool things about it. And I, I think there's a lot of right answers to that, but it seems like despite like kind of the Federation's goal of like peace, like the Enterprise seems to always be in the middle of some sort of conflict, which does make sense because they're the flagship and they're, they're where they're going to the flashpoints. They're going to the action areas. But, uh, but yeah, I guess because of that, I think that probably genre number two is action for me. Yeah, I think that's a safe bet to say action adventure is the rest the majority of star trek i guess i might go a little bit different and say drama but i don't think that you guys are wrong i think that's a very solid answer um i went a little bit back and forth just because i do think of you know the philosophical elements the political intrigue stuff like that that usually encompasses what i feel like star trek is so i feel like I know there's a lot of drama to the series too, but uh, yeah, action adventure drama, that all sounds pretty plausible to me. And then I guess to maybe even be a little bit more specific, if you had to outside of genre descriptors, descriptors, just describe the tone of the series uh, with examples being stuff like, oh, is it is it ominous? Is it funny? Is it spiritual? Like any any sort of tone descriptor like that, would you still stick with kind of like the action adventure, or is there anything else that you would put in along with that to describe Star Trek? I think I'd also put like um, like hopeful, optimistic, and like sort of just like spirit of 
discovery and explore, exploration in there. I don't know how to, like, I don't know, boil that down to just a, <laughs> well, a singular thought, but I feel like that's one of the one of the things I've always appreciated about Star Trek is just sort of the um, the optimism for the potential of mankind. Oh, I think that's a really good answer. Honestly, that sums up a lot of what I was thinking. Yeah, I would just add that it's very idealistic, right? And then some of the some of the iterations are less so. Uh, they try to get a little more gritty, a little more raw, like your Enterprise and some of the newer ones. But I think overall, it's just a very positive, idealistic uh, view of space exploration. And then looking at this film in particular, one of the things that I did... Um, so the movie's structured basically as an A plot and a B plot. The A plot dealing with the Borg on the ship, the B plot is ensuring first contact still happens. Most of the horror elements for the film really are contained to the A plot, and the total runtime of the whole film is about 110 minutes, but that breaks down to about 62 minutes for the A plot, the B plot, so A plot again, Borg on the ship, B plot, 40 minutes, that's first contact down on the planet, and about 8 minutes of credits. So what that comes to is about... 60% 60% of the film might contain horror film elements, but 40% of it doesn't really contain any. So I guess, do you feel like a film can be horror if there's 40% of the film that's completely quarantined from anything to do with that genre? I think yes. I think it still can be horror. I think there's a lot of horror movies out there that are pretty solidly in the horror category that have a fair amount of non-horror stuff going on. Um, I guess they're like, I think an example that we've used before or talked about a little bit is like Carrie, for example, uh, where you don't actually get to what might actually be considered the horror portion of it until like near the end of the movie. Um, so I think, I think having those, sections that are completely apart don't take away from its potential to be horror yeah i think uh that's true some something that i think about with that is maybe like a your stranger things i think stranger things is widely considered to be horror but there's quite a lot of it that is not doesn't have any horror elements on screen it's sort of light-hearted things um, lighthearted family fun, if you will. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think it, I don't think the percentage of screen time that's devoted to the possible horror, uh, thing, it, it may be limited in some way, but if it's 40% of it is not horror, I don't think that that makes it not horror at all. I think it maybe has a little bit of an impact on this film on rewatches. Just in the sense that when you see it for the first time, you really don't have any idea whether or not the Borg would be involved on the Earth at all. For all we know, some are teleported down there, right? I don't think that the film ever gives you any indicators that you should be worried about that. But for sure, the second time you see it, obviously, you know that anything that happens on the Earth isn't going to have any Borg elements involved with it. 
So, I mean, you do get in that way sort of the tension roller coaster that we've talked about with other films where, you know, you have tension up on the ship and then you come down for a break from the tension on the planet. But I don't know, maybe just that idea that it is a little bit separated out to me maybe lessens a little bit. I don't think that it maybe does in general, but I think it maybe works like that for this film for me. I can see that uh, what you're saying, especially with this film, because you also get it where like you've got the A and B plot, but they're also kind of separate groups of people dealing with this stuff. Like the, they're, they're all the crew of the enterprise, but you know, you've got Jordy down on the surface and Riker down on the surface. Like they, they're not having to deal with the the Borg at all like even when the horror elements are happening like they're just they're apart from it so it does kind of have a very like two stories kind of feel to it that don't really intermix so well, they do but you know they do but they don't and when they're out of touch with the Enterprise they don't even seem very worried about that either like I don't feel like there's a lot of conversation down on the planet like oh we're concerned about what's happening up there and maybe part of that's just a respect element like they've got it we know that they can handle this kind of thing so we're not worried about it let's focus on the problem down here but there really just isn't any conversation like why can't we contact the enterprise should we be more worried about it they just don't really get into that at least i don't remember them doing so they they just they don't seem very concerned and one of the, i was thinking that as i was watching it it's like man it really they really don't seem to care that they can't contact the enterprise but then Something that I was also thinking about is that this, all of this that happens to them on Earth is supposed to just be like overnight into the next day. Like it's basically less than 24 hours. That's true. Maybe they've just got too much to do and they're focused on the task at hand. I don't know. Like I said, maybe it's just they'll handle their stuff. Let's handle our stuff. If we worry about them, we won't get this done. Yeah, but I do think you're right that it sort it kind of does play a little bit of a role in making the film feel less horror that the people, the crew members on earth actually don't even know that there's any danger involved. <laughs> like they That's know true. what they're doing, but they don't know that they don't know that the Borg is a danger basically at that point. I think another element of that is you've got like, this is the crew of the enterprise. I, I kind of realized this. I recently rewatched the like best of both worlds episodes, um, which is where Picard gets um, where he gets captured and assimilated. But the the theme came up there too, where you, you just get like a couple moments where like you realize all of these people, everybody on the enterprise is ready to face death at any moment. Like that's just part of their job. Like, and you, you get that moment in the movie, too, where, you know, Picard's like, we're staying here and fighting to the death, basically. And and Beverly Crusher's just like, okay, that's what we're doing. Um, we're listening to the captain. And, like, you know, I think that plays a part of, of that feel to it where, like, down on the surface you got Riker and he's, like, they're just they're just always ready to face that. And they know that the rest of their crew is ready to face that. And they're just focused on what's um, what they've got to do. And what, you know, it's, it sort of like goes back to like, even like that whole, like uh, 
uh, I'm going to probably murder the name, but uh, the like Kobayashi Maru test thing where just being like Nailed you it. as, yeah, yeah. So they, uh, you know, especially the, the command crew, but probably anybody on the ship is just always ready to face death. Well, and I suppose that's true with the characters that we're dealing with it. So, so that makes the most sense, but maybe this is something to bring up just a little bit later here too. But, um, at least the TV series, not the movies so much, but the TV series always presented the idea. And maybe I'm 100% wrong and Trekkies listening will tell me I'm mistaken. But I was under the impression in the TV series that they established there's families on board the ship too that have kids and things like that that are just raising families on the ship. Do you guys under that impression too, right? Or no? Yeah, they have like a, a school for kids on the ship, don't they? I, I feel like I remembered that. Well, Wesley Crusher's on there, right? So, yeah, and right. they have like him and other him interacting with other kids on the crew. So, yeah. So I mean, but they're not. We're not dealing with those characters, so they might react differently to it. And your point is clearly how our crew is going to react to it with the idea that these are professionals. They're in somewhat of a militaristic situation, although the Starfleet version of that. So yeah, their reactions make sense in that context, but maybe as far as the bigger picture, looking at this film, going with the idea of like, yeah, are there kids that were assimilated? I mean, I didn't see little baby Borgs walking around, but in the series, they deal with the fact that that is the thing that happens. Uh huh. Yeah. Borglets. Borglets. Yes. A smorgasbord. So one of the other things I guess I wanted to talk about too is I feel like the B plot involves a lot of hopefulness for the future. You know, they talk about the era of peace and prosperity that they're creating from this moment of first contact. Does that tone of hopefulness, if you agree that it's there, does that undercut the horror of the A plot when it shows up? Does it affect the tone? Well, I think that horror... A lot of horror does involve uh, a certain bit of hope because when that's kind of the driving factor is that you're somebody's going to survive. There's hope that you can get out of this scenario. So I think horror focuses on that uh, to different degrees, depending on what genre of horror or what movie you're watching. So I don't necessarily feel that the idea of hope... Um, undercuts the horror aspect in first contact but i think that there's maybe something to, to be said on the idea of do i ever really feel that anybody of my main characters is in danger besides your typical star trek red shirts oh we're gonna get into that in just a sec yeah <laughs> as far as like if if hope undercuts the horror feel for me i i'd say in general, no, but maybe a little bit in this movie for me. Um, I think it's more, it's not so much that it undercuts it. It just gives it a, it places the ending firmly in a happy ending place. And we've talked about this a lot, What that happy ending doesn't mean not horror. I think horror can definitely have happy endings. But this one's kind of especially happy, especially hopeful, especially optimistic when you... Uh, if you're thinking about it in a horror movie context, I think. Um, so, uh, yeah, maybe maybe it does undercut it just a little bit. But, but yeah, not having it there doesn't take it out of horror for me, I guess. 
Yeah, I, I would agree that in general, having a hopeful tone doesn't mean something isn't horror. I think that it's certainly something that's possible within the genre. I do think that in this movie, maybe the optimism of the B plot undercuts maybe some of the feeling of the A plot, but I still think, you know, there's still an intensity with the A plot part of it. But going into the tension side of it, as Matt just mentioned, I wanted to bring up, so this film is different than almost any other film that we've covered for the show in that it's a chapter in a long-running franchise that's well-established in another genre, predominantly sci-fi, as we talked about. So this is the eighth Star Trek movie in a franchise that existed for over 30 years at that point. And for this specific cast, this is the second feature film, and they'd previously been in seven seasons of a TV show that came to about 178 episodes. So with that in mind, I kind of wanted to look at the stakes of the film. So first off, did you ever believe that any of our main crew of the Enterprise, Picard, Worf, Data, Dr. Crusher, etc., were truly in danger? Could any of them really die, or could the film end with one of them being assimilated, in your opinion, while watching the film? Did that feel likely? It's um, it's a little tough for me to kind of try and put myself in the shoes of myself when I first saw this movie. Um, so I don't remember if I felt felt like any of them were in danger. I guess like not really. Like I guess it wasn't complete. I don't think it would have been completely outside of the realm of possibility for me. But it, I mean, because the movies always feel like a little more. The stakes do. I don't know. Maybe that's not fair to say. It's going to say the stakes maybe do feel a little bit higher in a movie, but maybe that's just because they're bigger, bigger budget, flashier type things. But, but yeah. Um, so I guess, I guess to sum up, I guess I don't feel like I was worried about any of them. I don't think. Yeah. Again, it's hard for me to really say because I've seen this film probably like 20, 30 times, but um, <laughs> I I think it's a, a definitely a Star Trek trope that nobody ever really dies in Star Trek. It's kind of like Marvel or DC Comics and nobody ever really dies. Um, so I can't imagine having participated in any other Star Trek media and really being fearful for any of the main characters. Yeah, I can't remember for 100% certain how I felt the first time, but it's definitely one of those things where you think about Star Trek and you're like, okay, here's all of our returning crew. They were in the previous film. They were in the TV show. And also here's Lieutenant Hawk. And you're like, oh, he's dead, huh? Right. Oh, poor Hawk. Yeah, any yeah. any new faces here are not making it through. <laughs> That's the yeah. way Star Trek works. <laughs> So, I mean, that's I think that's kind of how I viewed it. I, I think that the movie functions well in dealing with the idea that I don't know that it really tries to make you think you might lose any of those characters. I think that it focuses more on the emotional journey, and I think that's a smart call. Because I think that it's not trying to convince you that Picard or someone like that is going to die so much as it just wants you to deal with the emotional stakes of the character dealing with the situation. So, like I said, I think that that works well. But I don't, yeah, I don't know that I was ever scared for those characters, and I, I don't know that the film's ever tried to make you scared for those characters exactly. The other thing, just looking on even the bigger scope, uh, 
So second, this movie, it establishes that the fate of the entire human race, at the very least, hangs in the balance. Did you ever feel that there was a possibility that the crew of the Enterprise would fail this mission? That they would lose the Earth? That they would somehow be like the last lone ship in a whole galaxy full of nothing but Borg? No, I don't think I ever felt that. I, you know, I I think that was always, it was always pretty assured that they'd figure it out one way or another. Yeah, that's just part of the serialization that, or the way that they present Star Trek is that you're going to be able to watch the next episode as if you've never seen the other one. So I didn't go into this movie with any other expectation than that everything was going to be exactly the same and unfazed when I watch the next Star Trek movie. <laughs> yeah, essentially we're going to reestablish the status quo and move on. So did that undercut the tension of the film for you? Do you feel like the film did build a lot of tension surrounding the outcome of things, or was it more character-based drama kind of thing for you? I don't think that it, like, it didn't undercut, like, the what the stakes were for like it was more it was more sorry i'm kind of babbling uh it was more i was worried about how they were gonna do it or like i was more invested in trying to figure that out and there was still the tension there was still the drama of the, all that um but I, I never never worried that they weren't gonna figure it out but just the tension of getting there i guess yeah i I mean, you don't really ever, like I said, you don't really ever go into a Star Trek movie with that sort of fear that they're not going to make it through. So, I, I don't know, it wasn't, there was tension, I guess the way that they built tension more than anything was like seeing the crew that is sort of the nameless crew members uh, getting picked off one by one and that the Enterprise might have to be to be self-destructed, right? So the tension is kind of there in that you're sort of thinking at the end, well, I guess they're going to have to all go live on Earth and live a quiet life now and they're not going to be able to go back in time uh, to their time. So there is a little bit of tension building, I think, there with what is not that everyone is just going to die, but how is everybody ever going to get back home after this more of a thing? Like what the losses are going to be from resolving this situation. Yeah. Cause I could definitely see myself having watched this movie initially and maybe doubting that they would ever make it back to their own time, but probably not doubting that like Picard would survive, you know? What would you guys say is the most tense moment of the film? Uh, horror, horror tension. The moment I was thinking of was like when Crusher is trying to evacuate sickbay, and the Borg are like literally beating the door in, and like you haven't you, you haven't really laid eyes on the Borg yet, and and they you don't even in that scene, I don't think, um, but you don't like. Yeah, so like you still you're feeling that panic of sort of the unknown and her panic of trying to get everybody out and get everybody safe, and you know she's just 
throwing everything she can at the wall, uh, you know, turning on the, the, oh shoot, the other, the holographic doctor's name. Um, but, uh, to try and just delay them a little bit. That was the biggest, like, I think horror tension moment that I had. The other tension in the movie that I felt like was elevated was sort of, um, Picard's, uh, like outbursts and, and like in his, but it's more like drama tension with him and like him dealing with like the PTSD, um, and going through all of that. Um, there's a, I feel like there's a lot of tension there and just like the arguments he has with Lily and things like that. Um, uh, but it's not horror tension. It's drama tension. I think the, maybe the biggest kind of tension moment, horror moment is like, when they when the two kind of unnamed crew members are going up into the tunnels there to investigate what's happening and they just get picked off but again it's like it's almost like if halloween if you watch the movie halloween but laurie strode was never in danger is it still horror even though all the like nameless or naked teens around her are getting killed so I don't yeah, know. I think that's fair. So it's like, yeah, is it less horror because you know at this point what's going to happen? So I think, you know, if you can connect with those characters as humans to a degree and then maybe that can amplify things even though you've only met them for a few minutes. And I mean, that happens in horror movies all the time, right? We spend a lot of time with characters who we've only known for a few minutes, but there's still tension surrounding what happens to them. So... Yeah, I mean, I could look at that scene and say, like, yeah, it's tense like a horror movie, and Jonathan Frakes has mentioned Ridley Scott as an inspiration for some of what he was doing there, and that scene is pretty much, I mean, it's not like it's straight out of Alien, but you've got Starship crew members walking through some tight corridors and then getting attacked by an alien unseen creature, so, you know, I mean, there's something there, right? So overall, from the tension side of things, how did how did that affect your designation for this i i don't know i guess i i have a little bit of a hard time answering that question cuz as we've said there is tension in the movie uh i think it did but the type of tension i think did end up playing a bit of a part for me in saying not horror uh just just because i do did feel like a lot of the tension ended up being more dramatic tension I think some of the scenes that we got, particularly those scenes, like the initial scenes where the Borg are on the ship, and then um, the assimilation scenes, and then the kind of body horror shots that you get of the crew that have been assimilated, is kind of why I'm leaning towards horror. I just, I don't know if I could, I still don't know if I could say this is a full horror film, but if you were going to ask, is any film in the Star Trek franchise a horror film, this would be the Star Trek horror film, is what I'm, is where I'm kind of landing right now. I mean, I would definitely agree with that. Yeah, I think at least as far as the tension side of things, there's, like Joe said, there is dramatic tension. I think that there's some tension surrounding some of the other characters and whether or not they can achieve their mission. But I think that there's really only a few times where it kind of feels like horror, even for as much time as you spend on the ship with the Borg invading things, at least for me anyway. I feel like most of those scenes kind of lean more like action-adventure kind of thing. 
But would you kind of would you say that you think this is a gory film? I don't I don't think so. Maybe there's moments I'm forgetting about and it's not like it's devoid of gore, but it's more sort of just that the Borg are kind of portrayed as kind of being gross. I don't uh, gross and I don't, I don't know exactly how to say that, but it's not gory. It's but it does have sort of a horror grossness to it. You think of some of those sections as body horror, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I definitely think that the film has body horror shots, especially like you start the film with like a needle slash screw depressing Picard's eye. And then you see later on shots of like an eye that's been kind of gouged out and has electrical parts. You have a close up of that, like the mechanical parts being inserted into an eye socket kind of a thing. And then the mottled gray skin. I mean, they're basically, you basically see the Borg zombification process. So that, that to me is one of the elements that's the most horror about the film is the sort of body horror elements. So the Borg are obviously similar to zombies in quite a few ways. Lily even calls them bionic zombies in the film. And since we covered Night of the Living Dead and examined zombie tropes uh, that that film established just earlier in the season, just a couple episodes ago, I wanted to see if we could list maybe some of the zombie film tropes that we noticed from Night of the Living Dead, established by Night of the Living Dead, being used here. Uh, Did you guys have any... I have my own list here that I blacked out. Obviously, we can look at that too. But yeah, just what tropes did you notice? The idea that one bite or from them or one touch from them can turn you to their side. Yeah, and I guess just sort of their overall movement. Um, sorry, Steve, I see that you have that there. So sorry if I'm stealing that. But like, just that they're sort of slow, slow lumbering type things that just sort of that kind of um, kind of unstoppable, like they're moving slow, but they're always going to just keep moving towards their prey. And you're not stealing it, you're good. I just wrote down notes for myself. But yeah, that's, those were definitely ones I saw too. Zombies are usually slow moving, so we keep doing that. And zombie bite in this sense it's you know injecting you with nanoprobes but just one touch can kind of turn you so i think it's maintained if not tweaked a little bit Uh, i also thought um, becoming a zombie means a loss of your humanity and individuality that's definitely something that's established in neither the living dead so we're seeing that here as well Um, and then other things i had listed was uh you're never clearly you never clearly reveal your zombie source which seems weird to mention here, but I feel like that's one of the things I don't know. Maybe I'm missing some of the extra material, but I'm not sure if they ever say exactly what the origins of the Borg were exactly. Maybe in the later seasons of Voyager they covered it. Do you guys remember them ever saying? I don't remember ever, ever seeing that, but I, I wondered if that was just a gap in my Trek knowledge. I'm pretty sure they've explained that the Borg weren't always like this. It kind of just like they used to be a normal sort of race until some things went down. (laughs) I mean, they do have that line of dialogue from the Borg queen in this one alluding to that, but I mean, that's as much as it kind of ever gets, I guess, or at least I thought as much as it ever gets. 
Obviously, that one's a bit debatable. I think Voyager delves in a little bit more um, to the idea of like the origins of the Borg and what Borg are thinking, and because they have like seven of nine, and she has her little uh, asides into discovering things about herself. And then aside from that, at least looking at other zombie tropes, I know you know you, usually zombie movies have some sort of siege situation where people are kind of stuck with the place with the you know zombies at the door so you do kind of get that here uh hordes are the real threat you can deal with an individual zombie but if there's a group of them it gets a lot harder a lot worse uh zombie movies usually push the envelope as far as gore goes and i would say that that i feel like that is more of a thing that happens here even though it's you know it's gory for star trek (laughs) but not super gory And then the other thing I wanted to kind of take a look at, most zombie films deal with the body of a person becoming a zombie. Not nearly as many zombie films really deal with what's going on in the mind of a zombie. And this film actively deals with that, with what remains of a person's humanity through Picard's PTSD and from his previous assimilation. From his previous assimilation. Through Picard's experience, we know that at least some, if not all, of the assimilated crew's minds are trapped in their Borg form. So does that make the Borg more or less horrific than the standard zombie? Well, one of the things that I think is weird about the movie is that we are... The premise of the movie is that you're dealing with a guy who was assimilated into the Borg Collective and then brought back and was okay. And then his stance is that they should basically shoot and kill on site every member of the crew that's been assimilated. So I'm like, why? (laughs) Couldn't they bring any of those people back? (laughs) Like, it's clearly established in Voyager later on that basically any Borg person can be brought back to their close to their humanity or their original status. And they deal with that a little bit in Picard. Spoilers for Picard now for season one. So he meets back up with seven, uh, Picard meets up with seven of nine and they have this conversation. It's really, it's really an excellent scene. There's a scene at the end of one of the episodes where she's asking him like, do you feel like you gained your humanity back after you were assimilated and brought back? And, And he just simply answers yes. And then she kind of looks at him for a moment and is like, all of it? And he has this moment where it's like, you know, he has to, he thinks about it. He's not going to lie to her. And he says, no, no, I don't feel like I've gotten it all back. But we keep trying and we keep working towards that every day. So I feel like that sort of informs a little bit of how I saw Picard's reaction to things in Star Trek First Contact with the idea of like, because he's dealing with the PTSD of this, he's struggling with it all the time. It's not something that's just gone away. So maybe in a way it's telling you his mindset, how he feels about it is that yes, they did bring him back, but he's not the same. He's never felt the same. He feels like he has lost something huge in this whole process of assimilation and return and that it would be better Maybe he even feels like it would be better for him if he hadn't had to go through this process at all. Maybe better if he had been killed. I don't know. Do you feel like you get that sense from this? 
that's pretty much how I read it too. Uh, I think, I think it's very much that like sort of fate worse than death thing that Picard's dealing with, or that's how it is in his mind, or at least at this point, at the, at the point of first contact. Um, maybe he hope, it seems like, I hope he's gotten better. Um, and you get that moment in Picard, like you said. Um, but, uh, but yeah, at least at his mindset in first contact, he's like, yeah, I would have rather somebody killed me um, than to have to go through that. And so I can see why that's his frame of mind. And, you know, Lily, I think, even confronts him about that. It's like, you could have saved, uh, you know, Ensign Lynch and you didn't even think about that. Where were your, um, where were your higher morals at that point? And he was just like, there was no way to do it even though, you know, it's already been established that there is a way to do it. But for him, it just, it, it wasn't worth it. Um, he would have rather died, I think. <laughs> it does go a bit against the idealistic view of the show, though, that whole premise of he himself is deciding that these people shouldn't have a chance to live after they've been a Borg because of his own personal experience but they don't really ask that question specifically so well I feel like Lily is asking him that question though I guess at least that's my interpretation is that her confronting him about it is her saying like you're talking about all these ideals but then you're not willing to to give the same and then you're supposed to have the emotional arc right like he goes to save data Anyway, even though that's a little bit simpler than like if he was going back to save Ensign or Lieutenant Hawk or something who'd been assimilated, who was a human. But I don't know. So, I mean, there's kind of an arc there. I guess there's potentially the idea that Picard knows that to be brought back, it's going to take more than just what's available on their ship. And he's looking at it as we're probably not going to get back to our timeline after this. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I suppose that's a thing, too. He's definitely in a scorched earth mentality at that point. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So here's a big question, I guess, in terms of how it affects the genre designation. Would you rather be turned into a zombie in the Romero zombie universe, like Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, or would you rather be turned into a Borg in the Star Trek universe? Which one do you feel like would be worse? I don't know, I guess, because I've always viewed Romero zombies as, like, they definitely died. But there's, you know, question marks in that, um in that idea too because you do have zombies who kind of start remembering some things from their old life and that sort of thing so it's like okay well is the person really gone um completely or is are they still in there somewhere i guess to answer the question like i feel like borg like the person is definitely trapped in there so that seems worse to me i guess becoming a zombie and just uh, like you everything that makes you you is gone like you you died and then your body comes back but you're not there um so i guess that seems somewhat preferable than to be trapped in a body that you can't control um and just have to be in the background of this other being um that seems like it could be pretty horrific 
Yeah, they definitely establish heavily in Star Trek Voyager that there are some, not all, drones when they go into their charging station. They are themselves still in this, like, I think it's called Unimatrix Zero, where there's, like, basically, uh, if you're familiar with, like, Brigadoon, it's like their Brigadoon, <laughs> um, where they're, like, they have this special place where when they go to recharge, they're just themselves again, but they realize that their normal body is being taken by the collective and used. So I think that'd be a definite worse fate than being a zombie, barring the idea that becoming a Borg can be reversed where being a zombie can't be reversed. So if you're talking about neither situation being reversible, I think Borg is worse. Yeah, I think that's what I would lean to, is uh, I would rather be a Romero zombie where I've, I've died and my corpse has been brought back than deal with basically being a passenger in your own body, perhaps watching yourself perform these atrocities or just just the existential dread of that idea, like just watching yourself and not being able to stop any of it would just be horrifying. So I guess does that horror of the Borg come across or do you feel like that gets lost in the overall fighting of the drones, that they're just, you know, numerous enemy to confront. I think it's one of those, like, it's sort of, it's not addressed head on, or at least, it's one of those things you you think about a little bit more, especially on rewatches, and when you're, you know, just thinking about the concepts more, you get into some of those more horrific elements, and, you know, you do get that a little bit with some of, what card says uh but uh but i guess as far as the movie goes i i don't think it's i guess confronted that much maybe that's not fair they i think you're right though they don't really delve into the idea that you're a passenger in your own body they kind of treat everyone that gets borgified in this movie as they're dead and a zombie and definitely better off dead. Yeah, it just feels like once they become a Borg, there's no real compassion for them except, like, because of Picard's reaction. But then Lily does bring up that idea, but I don't think it's touched on more than that of, like, dealing with the humanity of them still. Yeah, I think that we're dealing with it through Picard's PTSD for the situation, and so I think that's explored, and I think that that's done well. But I think that overall, the movie doesn't ask you to think about the each individual Borg that you encounter quite as much. They do use the idea, at least to bring it forward and to have Picard deal with it. But I think for the most part, when they're dealing with the Borg, um, they try to keep them kind of faceless, emotionless, in order to keep it from getting too heavy. So... I think that they could deal with those horrific aspects, those kind of like metaphysical being stuck in the head of it thing. But I think that they avoid hitting it too hard. They're not avoiding it altogether, but they deal. They avoid maybe hitting it too hard to maintain a tone that is a little bit lighter. At least that's my impression. Hopefully that doesn't sound too much like I just contradict myself. But anyway. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the worst they get is when the guys on the ground asking for help and Picard shoots him. That's the worst that you get into it. But 
they could easily have added scenes where like you know you see a tear drop from one of the crew members eyes as they're like going after crew members live crew members or th- like they could have done made it a lot worse so it, they clearly didn't go too hard into that yeah they could have done like oh we figured out how to tap into you know what these drones are thinking and they tap into one of them and it's just like them like screaming in horror but they can't do anything about it yeah so my next question involving the Borg then is looking at the Borg queen does giving the Borg a leader in that character does that take away from the horror of the film that there's you know someone that you can debate with that has a philosophy that has an ideology does that does that keep it from feeling as much like horror as it could have I go back and forth on that idea a little bit I guess cuz on the one hand I I think um like having having there be someone like that that you could talk with does take it away a little bit but then you also still see how she chooses to uh how she chooses to act like this is a you know a rational being that could accomplish her goals in many different ways but still chooses this path and I mean, it's still pretty horrific, so maybe that's even more horrific if you've got a more, like, I don't know, in-control person, I guess. Yeah, it's more, it's just the idea of you have the soldier villain or you have the true threat, uh, the (laughs) evil mastermind, and so you kind of get to delve into how the Borg may appear as the unrelenting zombie sort of thing, but there you get to delve into how there is this sort of evil plan and that the Borg queen is a complete true believer in what she's doing. And it would be different if the rationalizing with her could change any of the outcomes, but it's more of just like getting a clear picture that, okay, she truly believes this is the best thing for all species and that almost i think that that doesn't necessarily take away from the horror but could add more to the horror that she is unrelenting i think maybe in the way that it's presented in this film it might take away a little bit from the horror aspect because i think of at least what i think i find horrifying about zombies as a whole is the idea that they represent this, they represent death, right? It's not just in that they kill you, but the idea of death is always relentlessly coming towards us. It's inevitable. We can't stop it. And so we have to deal with it in that regard. And so the Borg, as a kind of zombie, also sort of represent death in that way. But by giving basically allowing you to in, in in a sense talk to the grim reaper by having the borg queen there and her being flawed her having you know different thought processes that you could rationalize with her i don't know i think maybe i understand from a narrative perspective why I add her in because i think it works better if you've got someone there to talk to i think that's why they did it but i do think that maybe it undercuts the horror of the situation for me I, in general, no, it doesn't have to be like that, that you can talk with the villain. 
I but I think in this sense maybe it undercuts the essence of what a zombie is by providing a face that you can discuss things with and i know in saying that too you've got return of the living dead that has talking zombies that they can discuss things with but i feel like they don't really get at the heart of things in the same way that they could here i don't know my next important question about the board queen is did the creators of the board queen need to go to horny jail <laughs> maybe maybe they do <laughs> I think it was a bit weird, <laughs> the like the whole like sexual tension w- between her and Data was definitely kind of a weird uh, aside. It didn't seem like it really fit within the rest of the movie. It's kind of like a USB stick hitting on a CPU. I don't know. <laughs> like, <laughs> what's going? What's go- What's going on there? <laughs> and like, she's she always go- moist. Is someone hosing her down between scenes? Oh, yeah, she's like, yeah, she looks like she's been oiled up. Um, I don't know. It's weird. <laughs> and I th- I feel like maybe that's maybe that's the C plot as far as like just another like moment for Data to kind of think about his humanity. Uh, and I feel like that's why that's why the Borg Queen was female. That's why the Borg Queen was sexualized is to sort of give Data that um I don't know, temptation, I guess, or that uh, chance to be thinking about himself in that way. Yeah, I think there's something to that. And and going back to like to the Ridley Scott analogy, which just makes me think again of Alien and Aliens, which I know Ridley Scott didn't direct. We've got James Cameron doing that one, but we've got the Xenomorph Queen in Aliens. So I wonder if we're dealing with the same like, you know, obviously there's a Hive Collective queen situation with insects so it's like referencing that like would aliens cease to be a horror film if ripley came down and was like hey alien queen you shouldn't do this anymore and alien queen was like all right well let's talk about it a little bit and also your perm's looking real good Ooh, you have a mighty nice thorax <laughs> i think i've seen that version of the movie yeah probably you shouldn't have downloaded that <laughs> I think there's definitely that plot line too throughout the film of like the idea of data and trying to figure out how touch changes things. I think it's a little bit, it's subtle because really it's just, you have that one scene between him, Picard and feeling, you know, the outer hole of the Phoenix. And then of course they're giving him skin later. So is that attempt to feel human and I can see why they're going for the temptation of it, but I don't know. Yeah. I think just like his interactions with the board queen, maybe uh, and for all the reasons I've already said, maybe undercut some of the horror of the Borg. I think maybe if they'd kept them faceless and without a mouthpiece that they might have been, it might've been scarier in that way. And maybe that's the whole reason that they, part of the reason that they did it in the first place. I think the film in a few places really, um, is trying to get a certain point across and maybe spends too much time on it. So that in particular with like trying to tempt data with, with feeling and sensation is obviously the point of all the scenes between her and data. But like the whole like sexual part, when you really stop to think about it, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but it feels like they just did that because they're trying to get that point across that data is tempted by sensation. Another example of that would be like 
does nobody under like nobody is reading the room that Zephyrin Cochran feels really uncomfortable with all the like hero worship and then they just like do that little stint of like like half a dozen things that are clearly making him uncomfortable and they just keep telling him things <laughs> and then i mean this has nothing to do with whether it is or isn't a horror right but then they just stun him and the next day he's up ready to make history and that's that really like they have a brief conversation about it but it feels a bit somewhat unresolved in a way <laughs> like yeah. how did yeah. they get him up after they stunned him like you just like hey this is happening or we're shooting you again okay i guess i'll make history yeah <laughs> Don't get me wrong, I love the film. It's like I love this film. Yes, so good. But yeah, there's certain uh, certain aspects of it that are like it felt like they didn't really have a lot of story there. They were just trying to really. They had one idea and they just did that a bunch of times. <laughs> Especially where later in the film too, where you're basically just going down to the the B plot on the Earth just to like break the tension for a sec before going back up. Like, you think about the outer hull walking on its scene, and uh, I think about it as one big thing, like Picard says, hey, if you had zero, you remember your zero-G training wharf? And he's like, yeah, why are you asking? And then they show him on the hull, and then they show him walking over, and then they deal with all of that. But when you actually watch the film, you realize that that's broken up by, like, three, I think, checks down on Earth. as like, hey, let's go see what they're doing on Earth for a sec. Okay, we're back. Um, another thing I guess wanted to just check in with two on this is uh there's the whole trope of invading a safe space you know the enterprise is the crew's home picard says as much in the film and horror often plays with invading people's safe space in order to create discomfort and or you know disorient the audience so did that structure of taking away a safe space make the film feel like horror to you would it have been different if the Borg took over some other ship that they were stuck on or something like that? I think, I think it does. That is definitely a big element of horror for, for this film, particularly, especially with some of the stuff we were just talking about earlier, where it's like, okay, there's, there's families, there's schools on the enterprise. Like, and you know, they kind of, they don't, they don't spend time on that, on that idea, but you know, you get like, Oh, they're invading all these decks, deck after deck after deck. And it's like, you just have got to be thinking like, those are probably like literally people's homes and like families that they're, that they're taking over. Um, and like, this is, and you know, this was our space and, you know, you probably got crew members who are like dealing with the fact that probably their family has just been, you know, taken over by the Borg, but they have to, you know, carry on with their duties and things like that. I think that that is one of the stronger elements of horror in, in the movie, for sure, for me. Yeah, and I, I think the scene where they really play on that trope is in when they first encounter the Borg in the Jeffrey's tubes. Um, that's like a big uh, trope of Star Trek that they go in these tubes and to go fix things. And so then you have them getting picked off when they go into that area. Um, so I think that's that's a purposeful play on that invasion of what's normally the safe space. This is where we normally go. We've seen Star Trek characters go there, uh, you know, thousands of times to go fix the problem. And now it's become a space where they're going to get murked. <laughs> yeah, I would agree with that. I think that's one of the 
the stronger horror elements of the film that I think works well that way. So one of the things I wanted to kind of end on here and talking about this is uh, first off, just why isn't the film being scary enough to classify it as horror? This is something that we've dealt with plenty of times in other episodes, but just kind of to bring up the point that uh, what is and isn't scary is very subjective. Even within ourselves, it's subjective because we can watch a movie, two of us together, and I might think it's terrifying and the other person with me might think it's not scary at all. And so, you know, whose judgment takes precedent in deciding whether or not the film is a horror movie then if one of us was scared and the other one wasn't. And then if you just think about a film that you've seen a lot of times, one that scared you the first time you saw it and maybe doesn't scare you at all anymore, maybe that's this film. Maybe it terrified you when you first saw it, but now it doesn't. So the fact that you're no longer scared by it, does that suddenly take it out of the horror genre? Or when you first saw it, maybe you thought it was funny and now you're scared of it. So did it suddenly go from not being in the horror genre to in the horror genre based on whether or not you're afraid? And so that's kind of why we look at this as a metric, but we don't use it as the whole metric because of just how widely subjective that idea is. I do think it plays into the classification somewhat, but it's definitely not the whole story. So at least looking at this particular film, do you feel like this film was trying to scare you at any points or trying to scare the audience at any points? I think yes. I think it was trying to do that for all the reasons we've stated. Um, and, I, you know, I, I, I don't at this point find this movie scary, but I could I can kind of re- re- recall some of the feelings um, when I first saw it that I was more creeped out by it. Um, I think one of the things about this specific movie that end up making me feel like that's um, that's not enough is maybe because it was specifically paired with the concept of first contact and like that's and that's like that for me is like star trek boiled down to its core thing which we are we've already talked about too which is just like optimism um for the human race optimism for the future looking forward and um and you know just seeing the best in ourselves um so the the fact that this movie chose to pair horror with the borg some of the you know scariest things of the star trek universe uh with like the best ideas of the star trek universe uh i think is what ultimately made me feel um like it wasn't horror because of that because because it has such a hopeful optimistic outlook when 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 it's all said and done like we've got people we've got picard dealing with these heavy issues but at the end of the day like he you know you know he's sitting there talking with lily and being like i i envy you like taking these first steps into the future for humanity and it's like that that's what star trek is about um is or what i think it's about um and it's i it can be in horror, but that's not what it's about. Yeah, it's almost like being a Star Trek film and your understanding of Star Trek as a franchise and how it works takes away from it being horror. Like, in a vacuum, a lot of the 
the in a vacuum the film has a lot of horror elements it has body horror it has some suspense horror it uses some of the horror tropes that are in traditional horror movies but the film just because it's a star trek film you know that you're probably going to come out on the other side with everybody being okay and a positive ending and happy and the evil foe is going to be vanquished and for me i think that's what really gets in the way of it being fully classified as horror yeah i would agree with all of that I, I do think there's moments where the film is trying to be scary with its presentation of the borg but yeah i i agree with everything you guys said and anything i say would really just kind of muddy it I, just all that to say i agree with the idea of that i think the overall hopeful tone of star trek is the prevailing thing that comes through in this film even in the borg sequences and outside of the borg sequences enough that i think that it ends up never really feeling like a horror film overall even though it definitely delves with those ideas and plays with those ideals and and does so effectively but i think that it never ends up feeling like the defining characteristic of this film for me and then uh i guess just on the final side of it uh what's your review of it would you recommend this film probably it's come through um just with us talking about it but yeah i've i love this film always have especially as far as the next generation era of star trek goes it's my probably my favorite chapter um so definitely it's it's great yeah i really think this is certainly the best next generation star trek film maybe the best overall star trek film ever I think I've seen just about every Star Trek film. Uh, you might argue with some of the original TNG, or not TNG, but some of the original Star Trek movies uh, being pretty good also. But yeah, I think it's great. It's really quotable. It has some really great scenes with the Enterprise, like, you know, flying huge over the Defiant to save them from the Borg cube and some just really great acting uh from sir patrick stewart just really overall good stuff yeah i echo all that i absolutely love this film i i think maybe wrath of khan is a better film but i still like this one so much more especially because i grew up with this crew so this was my star trek film with my crew kind of thing and uh i you know i already like zombies quite a bit so there's that amalgamation there and just this is just an excellent film overall i i love the through line as you guys have already said with picard and him dealing with ptsd from dealing with the borg and just how well patrick stewart portrays all of that it's just it's just such a good film all the way around i uh, yeah i love this one all right any other final thoughts on this film before we close out one quick thing uh this is sort of going back to the other stuff we talked about so sorry i should have brought it up then <clears throat> uh, but uh as i mentioned like i i recent recently watched watched through best of both worlds the two-part episode where uh, picard gets um assimilated and afterwards uh, Riker asks him like do you remember anything and picard picard just says I remember everything or everything. 
Um, so like that just kind of goes back into what we were talking about earlier, just about like the idea that, yeah, he was, he Picard was there in the back of Lucius's mind the whole time. Honestly, what a great through line, right? Cause you can watch the best of both worlds, that two parter, then you can watch first contract or first contact. And then you can jump right into the first season of Picard. Uh, and it just, it functions really well. You kind of get the whole story. I like how with these long running series, you can kind of like pick out small sections and still kind of get like a through line without having to delve through the whole series. Sometimes I think that's kind of fun. Yeah, I would definitely recommend, uh, going through and watching every Borg episode. If you really like the Borg and you really like Star Trek, just like check out because the, the Borg is almost like it's own underlying subplot that flows across all the Star Trek uh, different series. Um, Voyager especially deals a lot with the Borg. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of cool stuff with it. All right. Well, I think that's it for this episode and just wanted to say thanks for joining us on another episode of Is It Horror? The next episode is going to be covering The Shining. That's going to be out in two weeks, and we're going to have some special guests on the episode with us. We're going to have Horror Hour with the Hannahs joining us for that, and so that's going to be a lot of fun. We'll see you back here for that. And uh, I have been Steve. I'm Joe. I'm Matt. And resistance is futile, so just subscribe and keep listening. We will add your listenership to our own. Perhaps today is a good day to subscribe or follow the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for joining us at Is It Horror? We post new episodes every other Friday. To stay up to date on all things Is It Horror, follow us on Instagram or X at Is It Horror Pod or email us at Is It Horror Podcast at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show and you'd like to help support us, you can recommend us to a friend, follow and rate us on your podcast app of choice, or you can check out our store on Redbubble. In the meantime, stay safe and keep asking yourself, Is it?